In this episode of the Life Imperative Podcast, I speak with Claire Cameron, author of The Last Neanderthal. Claire and I talk about her new novel and the extraordinary amount of research that went into writing a book about our extinct hominin cousins. We also talk about our struggles with progress and how we can use that discomfort to create awareness about the future of our species. Hi, Claire. Thanks for speaking with me today. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Great. It's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, I think your background and your passion for, you know, all the, the natural world, it will be very enlightening. So, oh, and I also really like the way that you tell your stories. I think they're very real um, and you don't pull any punches. And I, uh, I like that a lot. So, <laughs> um, I will have introduced you before we get started, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I live in Toronto. I um, actually moved back here about 10 years ago. I spent some time in uh, Oregon in California after university. I was an outdoor instructor for Outward Bound um, in the mountain. So I did like mountaineering and whitewater rafting and that kind of thing. And then I was living in San Francisco for a bit and then ended up moving to London, England. Um, and that's actually where I started writing. And then, I don't know, I had kids and realized what a good place Canada is. So we right. came back here. Um, and yeah, I've been writing for, I guess, about 15 years, sort of more seriously. Um, and The Last Neanderthal is my third novel. That's great. Thank you very much. Yeah, so The, the Last Neanderthal, I read it. It was great. I um, heard you speak about it. And what, what I really want to sort of cover in this discussion um, is we'll talk about, about the novel, which is great, but reading it sort of really got me thinking even more so than I normally do about, you know, the fate of our species. Um, and when I went to see you talk, you talked about reading, um, uh, you've all know Harari's books and, and sort of the, the feedback you got from him. Um, so, and you also did a lot of research. So tell us a bit about some of the research um, and some of the, I guess, sort of the lessons that we might learn from, you know, the story that you told about uh, the last Neanderthal. Okay. So my writing process is a little bit um, chaotic. I'm one of those writers that, like, if I know what I'm doing, then there's no need for me to do it, you know? So, so I, uh, it's, I think of a novel as, like, a big, long question, and... I'm not looking for the answer. It's like, it takes me a book length to ask that question, <laughs> you know? Right. So I hope that in reading, you know, and my relationship with the reader is one of asking questions rather than having answers. And I'm, you know, in, I'm definitely working on theories and things, but, but, um, but I'm not really an answer person because I find I, that's not what I read for anyway. So that's the kind of book I write too. But um, when I started writing this book, it, the I did a lot of research, I would say about, you know, five years, probably cumulatively of reading. There was kind of on the back. I've always been fascinated with Neanderthals, but it was sort of iterative. So I do a draft and 
I'd write, and then I'd go back to the research. And I kept sort of going back and forth. And I think in retrospect, I'm glad I did that um, because there was a point at which I'd read so much research that I almost got frozen, you know? Right. And it becomes hard when you're so steeped in the facts to make things up. And in this novel, The Last Neanderthal, I'm trying to tell the story of the inner life of Neanderthals. And that's um, an impossible thing for scientists to do because um, I have a line in the book that says it's the things that don't fossilize that matter the most. So that's who you love or, you know, what you thought, how you saw things. We're never going to have any evidence of those things from Neanderthals, despite all the amazing things we do have from them. Um, and that's really why I decided to write this book, because I saw an opportunity for a novelist to use the the science that we do have is sort of a starting point or a jumping off point. So um, it's funny because I sometimes get into conversations with people about what's true in the book and what isn't. And my line on it, that is that it's a novel, you know, right. but it is, it uses the, the research as the jumping off point and everything that's sort of solid or could fossilize in the book is as true as I could make it. Um, so you did try to, you know, follow tr truth as what might have yeah. actually happened. Right. And and so I, what I was wondering, one of the things was what were some of those holes that you think you filled in? But even, even if you tried to fill them in as sort of possible as it could be, what were some of those holes that you that when, when you were, you know, researching, you didn't actually find something? Was there anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's so much. So <laughs> I think the most like clear, the really linear one that is the best way I have to explain it is um, did one of the big questions, and I sort of tried to tackle the controversy. So did Neanderthals mm. talk? And that's that's one um, that you know if you're if you're writing a narrative, you absolutely have to tackle. Right. So. And other Neanderthal books um, have done it in other ways, but I was working with research up to like 2014. So we know that Neanderthals had a hyoid bone, which anchors the tongue in us and allows us to speak. Um, and other, like a orangutan or a chimpanzee that don't speak as much of as us don't have them. And we also had a FOXP2 gene, which um, enables speech and communication in us. And it's seen that, been since found that Neanderthals also had a similar iteration of that gene. So those things to me kind of pointed towards speech and those are like hard scientific facts. So from there, I read the opinion of experts. Um, mm. So this woman in England, who's a voice expert, um, looked at the possible positioning of their larynx and that, that it sort of shortened squat. And according to her, that meant that their voice would come out with force and quite loud. And there wouldn't, she describes it as loud, louder and loudest. Right. <laughs> so not too much nuance. Um, so I sort of thought about those two things together. And, it, and, and I hold also just based on evidence, the Neanderthal cognition in high esteem. Um, so I thought they probably could speak, but if you're forcing out your words and you don't have much nuance, you're not going to be chattering as much as I am now, you know, you're right. going, and so that's where the novelist in me took those bits of evidence and started to extrapolate and 
I mean, very frankly, make things up. So um, I thought, well, maybe they have a much quieter culture, you know, and they lived in small family groups. So maybe they didn't need to chat all the time. Maybe they knew each other so well that they could infer things that we can't, or maybe they had um, better hearing and more, uh, more acute sense of smell. And they used those things more than aimless words, for example. So, right. so, um, so that sort of explains the the jumping off point. And it, like a word or a sound is something that's never going to fossilize. So that's exactly, you know, where I had to go into the realm of the imagination. And one of the points that you made, just made, is the difference between how a scientist looks at it and how a fiction yeah. novelist might look at it. But you talked about working with John Shea, right? And, yeah. and and how he he's a scientist um, and also he's a professor right and yeah. and but he he's also sort of really into books and films I think you said so so yeah. he he sort of was playing both sides of the story right yeah so and, he read um, a, it was sort of it was fairly like I'd done quite a bit of research and got the story sort of in shape okay. but I was struggling. And uh, so one idea I had was, well, you know, maybe I need to start working with someone and kind of, I didn't really know exactly what to expect, but he's at Stony Brook. He's a paleoanthropologist. And where we actually really connected, because I talked to a few people who I didn't think, you know, either they were going to be too literal about what I was doing or, um, yeah, I just felt like John had the spirit of it. And that's right. partly because he has an interest in wilderness survival. Um, so he has his like students make like um, stone tools and like skin goats and stuff. Like right. he's really wow. into it. So, um, and that's what his specialty is tools. So he, uh, and he's, I, I don't know if you, if you read stuff about Neanderthals, there's like a lot of the speculation on what, how they threw spears in their shoulder joints and stuff. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of that work. So it's very practical and very physical. And when he read my draft, he was like, oh, you have wilderness experience, don't you? Right. And I said, yeah, I was like for years an Outward Bound instructor. And he was like, well, that's actually something that's often missing in the research is that we have all these big mm-hmm. abstract debates, but not coming from people who've like had the experience of living outside or fending for themselves or whatever else. So he really connected with that in the book and could see what I was bringing to the science with that. So he went through and, uh, anywhere, like there was one point, um, so I'm really interested in the idea that Neanderthals made pitch. So it's like, um, it comes from like birch bark, for example, and it's a sticky tar like substance that you can use to seal a, a stone to a spear, for example, to okay. give it a really sharp tip. The thing with pitch, though, is that you have to get a fire to an extremely high degree and keep it like going for two days and you have to have the right materials. And I tried to do it when I was out camping and I like failed miserably and I had like an iron pot. You know, it's like a really complicated strategic process you have to have everything ready and do it right and you have experience more than probably the average person in doing this so for for somebody like say an average person being out there they wouldn't even know where to begin to get this yeah exactly so they had to it just so i wrote a really amazing article by another woman um 
about the process of making pitch and how complex it is and how it shows that the Neanderthals had like strategic planning. They could collect materials from different places. They were obviously able to like learn and pass on complicated stepped learning and all these things. So, so it was, um, how did I get onto this? I just got on a, I love. Well, we were talking, yeah, no, we were talking about John Shea and how. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, so he went through and he knew all like, so I had a scene where the brother was making birch bark pitch and he knew exactly what I was talking about, but I couldn't imagine how he did it without having a like stone bowl. And John was like, no, there's no stone bowls in the Arctic. Like maybe they had, star- but I think if we, they had stone bowls, we would have found one, you know, they're right. like, we found a lot of stuff that would stick around that might fossilize. So, so I was like, okay, well, so we started having a conversation about how he could make pitch using the materials that they more likely would have had, or what were there. I had a bit of a stone foundation on their hut. Cause I just knew made, you know, trying to get something to stand up in the wind. I was like, Oh, I totally use stones. And he was like, I also, I think we would have found them and here's right. some ideas. So we, we kind of, uh, not only did he sort of pick apart where my science was weak, but we also did some problem solving on how I could get around things. And I started to find that his suggestions the articles he referred me to or the places where I got wrong were also places where the characters weren't quite hanging together or is having some plot problems. So a lot of the signs that he pointed me towards once I started reading helped me write a better book, you know, from a novelist point of view. So it was, so the, the signs became more like a, like I, I kept saying, well, this is a novel. Why am I taking it so seriously? Right. That's sort of the question. Yeah. Yeah, that is the question, right? I finally came around to that. Um, But it became like a creative constraint. So like a set of rules that I was working within. And my writing often gets better when I like constrain it or I, you know, it's like if if I gave you a piece of paper and you had like 100 crayons, you could draw anything, you kind of get stuck. But if I give you like gold, um, red and silver, then all of a sudden you start, like you take cues from those colors and you're like, oh, I could do like a silver dragon and the fires, the breath. And it also gets like a whole feeling. So that's what happens to my writing when I constrain it. And so I use the, the science like that, like a set of rules almost. Oh, okay, that's that's great because I would, you know, I, I knew that there was a lot of accuracy and I knew you'd you have, have done a lot of research for this. So I wanted to find out where you, you know, if you sort of at sometimes just abandon that or if you, but it sounds like, you know, reading this, you're really reading what could have been an actual story of, of uh, a Neanderthal family. Which... Yeah, I've had some, like, obviously there are people who I've contacted, so it's a little skewed, but uh like uh, one of I tested it on one of um, John's um, grad students. She's you know she's gone on to work in the field herself, mm-hmm. and she came back and said she said it, it feels very plausible to her. And right. you know I've heard that a couple times. Um, but on the other hand, I took a line through the science, and not everyone's going to agree with the science the line I took. You know because there's tons of controversies in the field as you can imagine. So. Yeah, so others might not. I guess plausibility depends on what you believe as a result of looking at the artifacts, you know, so... Right. And it's, it's a novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the, but the novelist has that power to, to, to infer, whereas the scientists have to stick within 
you know, more of a strict guideline, what can we prove? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And a novelist is more free to ask what if and provide right. and speculate, right? Whereas a scientist, I mean, you can speculate as a scientist, but you're really not supposed to just, <laughs> you know, go wild. Right, right, right. And, and actually, this book came out of part of, like, I was reading the scientific literature, and I could feel the frustration of the scientists sort of restraining themselves, mm. or where one overstepped and gets criticized, or, you know, it's right. very, very restrained way of going about things for good reason. Right. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. Um, so one thing that, that uh, I don't know how like how much how many people realize this but i didn't know it until recently is that sort of homo sapiens and neanderthals lived concurrently for mm -hmm. a very long time and you also mentioned that you had your dna sequenced and um you found out your what a couple percentage of of neanderthals and you were proud of that right oh yeah so yeah it's i mean you have to be a little realistic about what those tests are. Like they're coming, they're only as good as their source of data, right? And they're not very open about what their data is. Well, one, I mean, and I think the test I did was based on two, um, two thigh bones, you know, from okay. Neanderthals. So wow. it's, it's a very narrow picture. And I think like the more Neanderthals are in the news, the more we're seeing it's getting more and more complicated. Right. Um, so you said you're, you've always been sort of curious about Neanderthals and you talked about your, I think it was your grandfather who introduced you sort of to the, the sort yeah. of scary Harry and the Hendersons type uh, Neanderthal. Yeah. Um, so is it, is, it, is it really just Neanderthals or do you have a curiosity about, I mean, they're sort of our closest, I guess, hominin cousins, right? But yeah. is, so, or is it just, is it anthropology? Is it? Oh, that's a good question. Well, this is... I find that th this type of thing has a real draw, like, you know, something that like I've never studied in school or anything like that, but it, but it, there's such a curiosity for us. What, what, what do you think is that curiosity? Why are we so curious about, you know, how maybe the Neanderthals lived and, and especially what you talk about the stuff that can't fossilize. We know we're not ever going to have answers to these. Yeah. You know, I think, um, Something I've been thinking about, this is kind of after writing the book, but I was, uh, as I said at the beginning, I think of novels as like questions. Yep. And a lot of the novels is questioning this idea of progress that we we tell our human story is one of going from primitive to perfect. You know, like we've arrived in this evolved state. And certainly when I went to school, we were taught that we evolved from the Neanderthals, that we were more sophisticated from, than them and smarter. And that's why we survived and they didn't. But, but I think something like in Sapiens, Yuval Noah Harari questions this idea of progress. And um, he really is one among a group of thinkers who are calling like the agricultural revolution into question. So we got tons of food and our population exploded, but are we really better off? And um, it's something, I mean, especially since the U.S. election and, and um you know, with all that's going on to, with our neighbors in the South and, you know, millions, 20 million people losing health care, it sort of gets harder and harder to believe in progress, doesn't it? Like that, you know, as a feminist, I've always thought, like, right. I have more rights than my grandmother. <laughs> but, but, uh, but I wonder, I wonder, and I wonder as much about, oh, there's no, no debating that 
you know, I have electric lights. I have, I'm, you know, I'm not like immersed in bugs right now, which I can't, you know, after being a tree planter in Northern Ontario, I really appreciate being in bug free environments because when you're living outside, you're not, or I have a fridge full of food. There's definitely things that make our lives easier, but I also really question what we've lost. And I think our, my interest in the wilderness comes from that, that, you know, if I talk about my time at Outward Bound, like, traveling for 30 days with this small unit of people I've never felt so connected and so sort of alive and I had no question about what I was doing on the planet you know and those and and you'll hear similar things weirdly from like people who have been to war you know to like and fighting with this common purpose and can you know surrounded by this small unit of people um and I think there's horrible things that happen after that i'm not glorifying that at all but i do i do wonder about that sort of you know what what we've lost and that drives my interest i think in bears you know with my second novel that they there's something that refused to be domesticated and they're still part of the wild and i think there's a part of a lot of us that feel that too that there's we've gained a lot but we've lost other things Right. And, and that is really what this is all about. Um, this whole podcast is trying to uncover these things and how, how to get back to a place where we have, you know, toilets that we can flush and running water and, and, and we're free of bugs. But also we're not sort of out chasing around the things that we don't really need, that, that the, sort yeah. of, the sort of progress that is, is, we think it's progress, you know, right now, but we're not going to look back at this in a couple hundred years as, as progress. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about was the, the symbiotic relationship of, of the, Ander- the Neanderthals in your book and the animals around them, the bears you talked about, the, you know, they had a, a, a pet that was just like a sort of a wild pet, um, even fish and, and other animals. So, you know, how does how does somebody like um, how does like a city bound sapiens like me live live a symbiotic uh, relationship with 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 animals? Yeah, I know when um, I actually just got a really weird uh, letter in the mail. And so you you know you write a novel and you get all these different things but my right. american publisher was like oh we got this letter someone mailed to you should i forward it and i was like sure but what you know i saw the hit i was just like oh this is gonna be good oh, wow. and i opened it up and it was someone just saying like you you know what did he say you're like city toronto chatter 21st century girl chatter or something blabbering i think it was right. but he he was saying, you know, you've obviously never had blood on your hands, but it's, you know, I was kind of like, it was, it was like a super mean letter. I'm, oh, I'm no. not saying, please, everyone send those to me, No, for sure. <laughs> but I'm kind of interested because it's like, yeah, I don't, I think about that a lot. I don't have blood on my hands and I eat meat and it's right. such, and like, we're so disconnected and could I, I actually have been, I have another writer friend and I was always saying like, if you, if I was going to go hunting, like on a guided trip, would you come with me? And we both don't think we can, like, I don't think I could do it. Right. But I know perfectly well what circumstances the animals that I'm, you know, eating or living under. It's a really hard question. And I think it, it comes with sort of like a everyday, it's like a low ache, isn't it? That there's right. like, it's not right what's going on. 
And, uh, but it feels also really hard to know how to pivot. So I think part of the answer for the Neanderthals is that they don't have as much language as us. And I read, um, have you, I don't know if you've read 15 Dogs by Andre Alexis. No, Alexis. I haven't yet. Yes. Right. It's all about like dogs acquiring language and what oh. happens to them. Okay. And one thing that is it's such an interesting book for a number of reasons, but he talks about dogs acquiring language. And the minute they do, they become separate because they're naming everything and labeling everything. And so it's like, they exist as an entity that's separate from the world. And I really think we have that. We have the separate sense of self. And that gives us not only, and the dogs in the book have like this craving to return to the pack. And I, I just see that in us, that we have this separate sense of self that's not even attached to our own body. And that gives us the permission to do whatever we want in a way, because we're detached. We're not of it. You know, we don't really take responsibility for stuff around us because we're not part of it in this sort of abstract way. Yeah, sapiens have deemed ourselves, you know, special for most of our recorded history. And I think recently people are more sort of discussing how, you know, we're not really that special. We're, we're you know, other animals, especially other mammals, are you know they have their consciousness and, and their emotions are probably very similar to ours so how do we i guess take that you know what you and i are looking at as a step back um when we you know we started doing agriculture and mass production of meat how do we take a, a step back and do sort of the right thing or or and you and as far as eating meat goes i mean i eat meat as well and i would find it hard to be i think a vegetarian i think this whole society you know would find that hard but yeah. what's where's the balance and what and and do we is just looking at ourselves as really not that special is that sort of the 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 aha moment it might be, you know, it might be a start. I, eating cockroaches might be another answer. Like, right. <laughs> dogs have huge amounts of protein. <laughs> if we could get our mind around that, <laughs> that would like single-handedly solve. It's just the crunch. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but uh, I do think I think it's so. I was really into this. Um, I am Sarah Hardy is her her name, and she's. Um, a, she sort of specializes in primates, but she says that exactly, that whenever we develop all these theories about human beings and how special we are, all it's doing is revealing our ignorance about the different animals and the way the world works. And I think that's so true. So we need to sort of take a step back. I think also this idea, I don't know, I'm just sort of on this at the moment and I don't quite know where to go with this, but like since the enlightenment, right, we've turned, we turned, it was at that point in like 18th century Europe that we turned away from religion and, um, you know, personal belief as like having answers and tried to turn to reason. And the whole idea was that if like humans were free to use reason, that we would slowly perfect ourselves. And that's such like such a deeply ingrained thought that everything we're doing is on this like slow march of progress. And what's happened for me and, you know, especially since the U.S. election is it's just it's just not true. And I can see as like a white person, you know, how that has served me and why I wanted to believe that. But 
it's not been true for so like ask anyone, you know, a first nations person in Canada, it's just not true. So I'm kind of in this like (laughs) bad part where I'm just kind of grieving that and I'm trying to figure out where to go. And I think a lot of people are right. It's like, I think you're right about that. Like I have to keep going and it's, you know, shriveling up in a little ball under your desk isn't an option either. Right. But I don't, I don't, I, I feel like, and hopefully there's this thing welling up where we're, we're going to form, you know, an idea, but I don't have an answer. I'm really like, I'm kind of in the grieving stages, I think right now. That's great. And I think we'll probably talk again because a lot of that sounds like what I'm really trying to do with this podcast. And, you know, because I'm I'm sort of in that grieving state too, and we just celebrated, you know, 150 years of yeah. Canada, and that's that's a bit of um, you know, the more I think about it, and the more I think some of the people I've talked to have thought about it, it it's we're we're not what are we really celebrating, right? Because yeah. we know so much more about our history and the history of the, the the people that originally came to Canada, or you know, North America, call it. Um, so the, the whole celebration of 150, you know, it's, it's, again, there's a, there's a bit of a struggle there because you, you want to celebrate the, the things that we've done as a country, but you don't want to oppress any other, you know, animal or any other, you know, person. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's at what cost, isn't it? it? It's at what cost. Yeah. So, so that's great. Listen to your podcast, obviously, because I'll be, I'll be so interested to hear what other people have to say. You know, because yeah, it's—I mean, there's a lot of people shouting at each other right now, but I think there's a lot of people trying to have use conversations, and I think that's the one thing when you look at human history is that we don't do things on our own. We always—it's collectively. So I hope something—it'll be—it'll be great to hear different people's ideas. Yeah, that's insightful. Thank you. Um, so I also wanted to talk about Harari's latest book, Homo Deus. And, um, you know, he talks a bit more about the future and, you know, we're sort of getting onto that topic. And I also read an article you wrote for The Millions where you discussed AI and um, Alex Garland's film Ex Machina, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it was a while back, a couple of years, I guess. But, uh, you know, just as we're talking about this and this struggle, you know, artificial intelligence is one of those things that is sort of you know, it's, 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 it's coming. Um, we can do a little bit with it. We can do a lot with it. It could be similar to another agricultural revolution where it, you know, we think it's great at the time and maybe, you know, some people start looking back at it. Do you have any thoughts about maybe since you've wrote that article about AI and, yeah, I've, I'm so interested in it, and especially like Toronto's becoming quite, kind of a hotbed, right? Right. It blows my mind. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I grew, I've moved to other places, but I lived here um, when I was young in the 70s and 80s. And it's funny that Toronto, just funny to like hotbed in Toronto might go together. It's right. amazing. So I'm happy for us in many ways. And I feel like this city is changed and so much more open because of, because we've been, welcoming to like different kinds of people and 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 that's where really interesting things come but uh one thing in harari's book that really struck me is this idea between between intelligence and consciousness you know that they're two actually very different things right and um like consciousness is a little bit what i was thinking about with the neanderthals and that we all have these like this little narrator 
that sits on our shoulder and talks to us. And that's the person that we associate with. But that's like such a small slice of us, right? So so there's intelligence, which I think computers can be better at. And one of the, the examples I love is of Harari's is using Waze, you know, the navigation app. But there's just no way you can know what it knows. It, it knows where the accidents are setting out and it can like route you around. And at some point you come to a point where everyone's rerouted and that doesn't work. But but there just are things that that uh, something that's thinking systematically can can do better. But it's quite different from consciousness, which is an awareness, you know, and and um, the ability to project forward in um, sort of a moral way. And that's where. I think we really don't understand what that is. You know, there's no, and and it's actually, it's sort of like a soul. Like we all feel we have one or something or a spirit, but you can't see it under a microscope and we don't have any idea what it is. Right. So, so in some ways, I think we, I hope we're taking responsibility for that and trying to, because I think that narrator is actually often hard to live with too. <laughs> like That's that. True. So, so if I idealized Neanderthals, it was sort of in my book, it was because I was imagining them with less of a narrator. They probably had a little bit less, less someone being critical and, and, and sort of critical or encouraging or whatever else. So I don't know what I really think, but I do think those two things are, often confused in the conversation and that they're actually quite separate and that you'd hope that that we could start doing things more like efficiently and better but i think and and make life more bearable for a, a lot of people in a moral way but i think it's important that we in this, that we completely lose this idea of progress, because I think that's going to be very harming. If we right. think that there's some sort of um, exterior force that's m- taking us in the right direction, that's how you really end up in- with trouble. And I think what I loved about Harari's new book is that it's like asking us to take responsibility and question. And and I guess since I've read it, I, and since I watched um, Ex Machina, I've thought that's where my changing is sort of, where my thought has changed is, is thinking about this idea of progress and trying to let it go. So one of the things that I think about too, as a Canadian, is that we, we sort of live in a bit of a bubble, right? We, yeah. we have, we, you know, as far as we have lots of natural resources, we have, if you want to even look at it in some ways, back to what you're saying about progress is we, we don't have as much of that quote unquote progress that the United States have have. We have lots of room for the, the people that live here. We don't have necessarily a population problem. So how, and I, so I find it really hard as a, as a Canadian, and this is one, one of the things I'm struggling with is relating to, you know, other people in the world who don't have it so so yeah. good and you talked about even moving away and you're living in great places like in 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 california and in england and you know you still sort of chose toronto to raise your family so so do you feel like we're in a bubble in canada or and how do we oh, yeah. it's i was so aware of it when i moved to england and i was we were my husband and i were buying a flat like a apartment yep. and um I realized that I really like when push came to shove and it was a lot of money and it was kind of scary. I realized that I thought price was something that was inherent in things like that, you know, you worked hard and the 
the supplies cost this much and therefore you arrive at like a fair price. And, and I realized through that whole negotiation process that price in England, because it's like, especially in London, it's hard to get supplies. It's just what you'll pay. That that's all. So someone will just take as much as you'll give them. And I was like, Oh, and it just, I just realized the like depths of how naive I was and how sheltered I was. And I probably don't, you know, you get these little glimmers where you see it. Or like, I remember I was talking to my American friend and she was going on about Trudeau and I was like, yeah, but he's not perfect. And her, like, she just, like, I saw this glimmer of like hate. (laughs) She (laughs) was like, do not take what you have for granted. It's all relative, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, that's hard to argue with, but I think one of the things that, um, like letting go of progress is also like trying to see more objectively what you have, you know, and try. And I think that's a lot of being white in Canada too. It's like, what are your, why do you have your advantages that you do? Um, so I think moving around helps with that, but I find like reading is so invaluable for that. Cause you get to step into someone else's mind and, and be someone else in a way that you can't otherwise. It's an incredible books are incredible for that. Yeah, and and back to your book, I I find even as a, a work of fiction, it's incredibly important for that type of um, just to create a sort of curiosity uh, in the reader, right? And 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 they may yeah. say, you know, they may say, oh oh, what did you know? What does she know about Neanderthals? They didn't do that because I remember learning in high school something about this and that. There was no there was no sapiens around then, um, but then if they decide to step out of your book and read, they'll find that you know, it's, it is accurate and that from what they've learned, maybe they're out of, out of date. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just like create, there's gotta be a role in science and everything for saying what if too. And, you know, and one person isn't going to have any answer to that, but as a group, we can, you know, if like enough people are asking and enough people are curious and, like my book sparks curiosity in someone else and then they go on to do something else. That's fantastic. That's what it's for. That's great. So is there anything that you're working on now that you wanted to talk about? Is it, I I know you also do some writing for the millions um, and and many other publications in the U S and Canada. Um, Is there anything that you wanted to mention? Well, I'm always trying to, I'm such a mess when I start something and I would say I'm in the mess. I actually read, I'm not like a huge U2 fan, but I just, this guy was just telling the story of U2 and how they like sort of came of age as these like Irish rebels. And then they got really like rich and famous and it didn't really hang together very well anymore. And Bono was just talking about the, like moving from the sort of Irish young rebels to like, what, what were they going to be? And he was saying it was harder to do as a group. And especially because when they said, okay, we can't be that anymore, then they were left with nothing. So they were kind of standing there like, you know, and, and it, they built up other things. And, but, but that's always how it feels to finish a book for me is you you leaving it behind. And then you're like, I have nothing. Like you don't feel like a writer. You don't, it just feels like you're washed up. So um, at the moment I keep writing about Neanderthals and like extending the story of the last Neanderthal. And I can't decide whether I'm doing that because I can't leave them behind or right. because I really have something to say. So every morning I sit at the computer and I write about a thousand words and I scrap the a thousand words. So I'm just like, yeah. Right. 
Yeah. So my publicist, a publicist once said, you should work, talk about what you're working on because you don't make it sound very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, I think it sounds great because it, it, what I was really excited about was, you know, this book and I, and I sort of stumbled upon this book. I was excited about it because I, I do try to read a lot of, you know, nonfiction, you know, like I said about my interest in anthropology and paleoanthropology. Uh, so when I found this book, I was really excited because I, I sometimes look at reading fiction if it's not anything that I get, you know, educated from. We both have kids. You don't have a lot of time sometimes to just yeah, sit back and read. Yeah. So when I yeah. do, I want, it, I want it to sort of get something from it. But um, yeah. the more that I sort of go down this rabbit hole of these related books and uh, fiction writers like yourself and are doing the, the research, it, I find that there is a lot to learn from from fiction like this yeah so, it's a different different way of asking questions yeah yeah and and it's and it's a great way you know there's like you said there's the scientific way to look at it and there's reading those sort of books but then there's also the way to look at it where there's a bit of fun in it and you can challenge your reader and the real reader can challenge you back um we can leave it there i you know uh, let us know where people can read about you or find out more about you what's the best way to get your books um, my books are in just in bookstores online and in in stores, and uh, I have a website, which if you Google Claire Cameron, you should come across. And that I sort of keep that up to date with what I'm doing and where I'm going to be. I'm doing quite a bit of touring in the fall too. So, oh great! Well, if anyone wants to come and say hi, that's fantastic. Yeah, around Ontario, and I'm going up west too. Excellent. We'll look forward yeah. to that. Thank great. you so much for talking to us, Claire. Thank you for having me.